North Idaho is home to beautiful mountains and scenic lakes, small-town tranquility, civil freedom, and the faithful Lutheran parish of Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church, located in Hayden, Idaho, near Coeur d'Alene. Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church is a proud sponsor of A Brief History of Power. If you like what you hear on Brief History, then you will love Blessed Sacrament where the Lord's Word is faithfully preached and Christ's body and blood are administered at every divine service. Whether you are visiting Idaho or considering moving to Idaho, wouldn't it be nice? Please join the saints of Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church for the Mass and Augsburg Academy Bible Study. Directions, service times, and much more information about this confessional, liturgical parish may be found at blessedsacramentlutheranchurch.com. Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church, Historic Christian Orthodoxy, the Evangelical Lutheran Faith in the Beautiful Inland Northwest. At 7,123 feet, you can find mountains soaring above you and rivers running swiftly in the valley below you, natural beauty of every kind. But our God is richer in his gifts than this. At 7,123 feet in Pagosa Springs, Colorado, you can also find God's Word preached purely and His sacraments given out for your salvation at Our Savior Lutheran Church and School. Located off US 160, just west of downtown Pagosa, Our Savior offers your children a wonderful place to learn of Christ and His wisdom week in and week out and offers you the medicine of immortality Sunday in and Sunday out. Our Savior Lutheran School provides a Christ-focused classical education that enriches the child's soul with the best that has been thought and said to the glory of God. Whether you visit while vacationing or hunting in the beauty of the area, or whether you would like to join a group of faithful Lutheran Christians, Our Savior, Pagosa Springs, has what you're looking for. Divine service with Holy Communion is each Sunday at 9 a.m., and Bible class follows at 10.30. At more than a mile high, you will find Christ in all his glory in the midst of his people at Our Savior Lutheran Church and School, a proud sponsor of A Brief History of Power. Find out more at oslcpagosa.org. The 8th Annual Men's Gathering is happening at Lakeview Villages in Seymour, Indiana, the weekend after Easter, April 21st through the 24th. Join other Christian men for a relaxing weekend of fellowship, feasting, and fun of every kind. Men will learn how to resist tyranny and how to have a good conscience as fathers, men of the church, and citizens from our main speaker, Dr. Kuntz. He'll guide everyone there through scripture and church history as we seek to live as free men. Check out our website at www.mensgathering.us for more information and to register. You can also search Men's Gathering on Facebook for updates leading up to the event. It is going to be a wonderful weekend for men to relax in God's beautiful creation. The timely topic will be an encouragement and provide much-needed strength as we go to battle against the powers of this world. We hope you'll join us for the 2022 Men's Gathering, a proud supporter of A Brief History of Power. Are you wondering where my sermons went or where Saturday morning chill went? 
Well, sorry, it wasn't really clear about this in every avenue. I figured most of you would find me if you wanted to. But if you are looking for those things, they've just diverged into new podcasts. So you'll have to search iTunes or Spotify for Saved. That'll get you the sermons of Pastor Fisk. And uh, Stop the White Noise with Jonathan and Meredith. That's the Saturday morning show. It is available in audio, again, in Spotify or iTunes. Stop the White Noise and Saved. You should check them out. Dr. Kuntz, uh, are you familiar with Jared Diamond's Guns, Germs, and Steel? And if so, what is your review of his uh, contribution to, what, natural history? Yeah, I am familiar with it. And my review of it is that he overestimates material factors in history and underestimates the reality of different people groups with their own histories and cultures. And in addition to that, and because of that, underestimates the role of philosophy or theology or ideology, depending on, you know, whether you're thinking sociologically or theologically. That is that it's a basically anti-humanitarian or anti-human way of looking at human history. What I found uh, useful when I read it years ago, I, did, I didn't like the book much, but what I found useful was the idea that... Um, I had never, I'd never considered how much random chance really does seem to come into play in terms of who develops when and how much what you have access to is a big part of that. I mean, do you, do you feel that he just over, you mentioned he overestimates it, right? But um, yeah. was there an underestimation of those factors before? There, there really wasn't because the great shift that you see within history as its own let's say discipline. So historiographically, not historically, but in the writing of history, historiographically is a shift. I'm saying very broadly, but I defended broad categorizations, I think last week. So I'm just going to do it now. In the 19th century, from maybe an overestimation of both individuals, that's the great man theory, uh, let's say in a nutshell, and then also people groups as peoples. So this would be to say that anywhere that the English go or people of English descent, which would be a certain you know theory about differing Anglo-Saxon nations, including the United States, having common destinies for this reason, that they, by virtue of who they are as peoples, would behave in a certain way, set up certain kinds of polities etc. In the 20th century, and then into the 21st, because we are still living in the shadow of, of the 20th intellectually, there is going to be a vast overestimation. And Diamond is one example, I think, of material factors that we're basically all Marxists of a kind is what I'm saying. Now, where we think that economics and I mean, right-wing people think people that think they are right-wing <laughs> also think these things. So this is not the the preserve of the left that material factors matter most. So the free world being defined for people as a place where capitalism, whatever that is, prevails, or seemingly random ecological factors being entirely explanatory. And it's not that either I think individuals and people don't matter or that ecology or economics don't matter at all. I just, I, I think that people 
and people's matter a great deal more than they have been said to matter in the 20th century. And that's a much better explanation for why, for example, even where you get simultaneous parallel phenomena, like let's say what, what is called somewhat inaccurately fascism in Central and Eastern Europe in the 20s and 30s, it doesn't look at all the same in Italy and in Germany and in Romania and in Serbia. So that is, that's my caveat to guns, germs, and steel is that it's a, it's a characteristically modern underestimation of the reality of people groups as people groups with attendant history, culture, predictable behaviors, architectural styles, religious motivations, et cetera. Do you distinguish between, yeah, you, you have to distinguish between people groups and civilization though, as we talked about last time. So can you define yeah. people groups for me a little bit? Yeah. People groups are going to be much smaller and, and, and than, a, than a civilization. They might be the only example of, let's say in, in Quigley's terms, that kind of civilization in a given place, right? So the only representatives of European civilization in Mexico in 1531 are the Spanish, you know, with their own very particular history formed in opposition to Islam in a way that a group of Danes in the same place in 1531 would not be oriented or directed in their thinking. So a people group could be what used to be called a nation. It could be what is now more commonly called an ethnicity, even though those two things do often overlap in, say, continental Europe. But a people group is not a civilization, strictly speaking. An entire civilization is almost never going to just move somewhere because there is something sedentary about it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> By right. definition, a civilization has a, a civitas a city of some kind, and you can't just pick up and move the whole thing. Yes, it's the spreading of something rather than the transference of it entirely. Yeah, right. Does does the word tribe work for people? It it might. I <laughs> I'm allergic to it from a completely different direction because it's this, you know, kind of it's trendy. Yeah, postmodern Christian derived from Silicon Valley word for things we used to call in a boring but clear way church bodies or confessions. <laughs> but the problem with it historically would simply be that it usually denotes a much smaller number of people with a much lower level of organization, maybe even not really doing agriculture, let alone producing things industrially. So it, th that's why I would, I mean, I wouldn't say like the tribe of the Spanish came into, right, you right, know, right. Yeah. You, you have 12 tribes in the people of Israel, maybe would be a way to look at that. You do, you do. And tribal organization usually exists before a certain time in any given nation's history. That is, there are tribes following essentially chieftains or warlords that are going to, let's say, invade England between the time when the Romans leave and the Normans arrive, right? So it's a very long time. Some of those tribes will never settle and they will remain tribes because they are essentially raiders. So they're not invested in agriculture or industry or anything else. Many of them, however, will fuse into a new people called the English. That's what's called an ethnogenesis historically, the, the beginning or creation of a people. And so tribes will often go out of existence at a certain time. Interesting examples would be you, you could still have, especially in kind of East Africa, as well as uh, the Middle East, 
people who have been settled in cities for a long time may still have cognizance, not only of their ethnicity as say Amhara or, you know, a certain kind of Arab, but also they will have a tribal identity. That's not going to exist even for people who are very ethnically specific in the modern day, like Swedes or Scots, right? They're not going to have the same cognizance of tribe. Hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. It makes me want to talk more about then family and clan, but I'll shift back toward the the diamond idea. And and what made me want to bring him up was, uh, you know, how how do you level uh, gunpowder and its adaptation beyond fireworks um, to to weaponized? Uh, where does that fit in the story of industrialization and the modern world? Well, guns precede almost everything that is called the Industrial Revolution, capital I, capital R, by anybody. Also in Europe, not just in their export, most successfully to Japan during that same you know, early modern period, sort of Reformation and Renaissance era. And so it's, it, I mean, what, what you have produced prior to the Industrial Revolution, which is, a, which is a revolution in Europe, generally beginning with Britain um, near the end of the 17th, but certainly into the 18th century, a revolution in the scale of production, right? So it's not the fact that things are produced mechanically or produced in large numbers in ways that are relatively themselves standardized. It's that that is done in a, on a, in a scale totally unprecedented. So when you're thinking about production of guns, for example, that is something that's going to revolutionize warfare first in Europe and then in the rest of the world. But it's something that, I mean, you do have to ask yourself like, okay, well, this didn't, this wasn't produced in enormous numbers in Croatia. (laughs) So this, this came out of certain parts of Europe that had a certain amount of trade and peace and know-how and so that is not quite the same thing as the industrial revolution that's going to be going to be taken later, where, for example, a place that's very, very productive in guns from a very early time, Germany, let's just the German lands, there is no Germany right. at the time, the German lands will actually be pretty far behind, especially Prussia, which will come to dominate Germany, pretty far behind in industrial development in the 19th century. So it's it's not i mean i don't that's why if you say okay well europe or the west or something produced guns well that that's fine from a certain standpoint but it really explains nothing in taking into you know your mind the things that i just mentioned it explains almost nothing about what happened anywhere outside europe because the germans not only didn't develop industrially they didn't develop politically so they didn't colonize hardly anywhere until after our civil war. So there have to be other factors besides these material factors that are, I think, much more important in understanding what's happening historically. Yeah. Is there a phrase or or word to describe the era between the rise of military with gunpowder and the Industrial Revolution? I mean, it, it's not medieval, right? Like, so what's what's between medieval and then besides, I guess, the Enlightenment, but that doesn't seem to fit. Yeah. Yeah. And some people would... Uh, the thing that I see that most often called, if you're looking this up, is going to be early modern. Yeah. It, it used to be called more often Renaissance or sometimes 17th century. Part of the reason that there isn't a standardized term is because 
each major European language remembers that time very differently. Hmm. Because for English speakers, that is a time simultaneously of the beginnings of America, if you're an American. But if you're not an American, but your native language is English, you're probably going to remember the English Civil War and the strife of the Reformation in the British Isles, which was difficult and bloody, at least at times, in each of the nations of the British Isles, Ireland, Scotland, Wales, and England. So if you're French, you're going to remember the height of French royal and cultural power. If you're German, you're going to remember the Thirty Years' War. So because those nations have vastly different memories, historically, but also just practically, I mean, we have no practical cognizance of the Thirty Years' War if you're an American. So it doesn't matter. We don't think of it at all. Maybe if some of us are Lutherans and historically interested and know about Europe, we might know of it, but otherwise, no. Right, right. Yeah. So then um, all those nations in those different memory states of that time period are going to be part of what Quigley will see as Western civilization, though, right? Correct. And so then this kind of leads us to the steps, right? So they're they're not really united at all. They're not really working in the same direction at all. So how does this fit into the framework we're developing? Yeah, it's because Quigley looks at history at a very large scale. So he is what used to be called, they they hardly exist anymore, a macro historian. This is kind of the opposite of what if you got a degree in history at any level and you had to write something for yourself about history, this is usually the opposite of what you're asked to do today, right? So today you might write an entire you know doctoral dissertation about you know, I don't know, domestic servants in, in a county or a house in a county of England. And that's your entire doctoral dissertation uh, over a period of, you know, 1400 to 1450, something like that. Quigley is looking at the entirety of human history as much as he can possibly know about it. <laughs> and so if you get the book, like you're going to, I mean, I'm, I, I'll turn a page and I'll be like, I cannot believe that he's telling me something this arcane about Japanese politics in 1891. But here I am reading it, you know, <laughs> so I mean, I'm a, I'm a complete like, you know, completely superficial thinker. And I know basically nothing compared to this guy. <laughs> so if you look at things on such a macro scale, you're going to see a resemblance between France and Germany and England relative to even Poland, let alone to what's now Saudi Arabia right, or China right, or right, whatever. Right. Yeah. And so that's how he can generalize the way he does, because on a large enough scale, either zoom out enough right now or zoom out enough over enough of history, you will see neighboring people groups. Let's just say, you know, somewhat agnostically neighboring people groups, nations, whatever, behaving in very similar ways, doing very similar things, not all at the same speed, but for example, Quigley has several steps in this process, but for him, the first step that makes something Western, why, for instance, is Australia Western? <laughs> it's all the way down there at the bottom of the globe underneath, you know, East Asia. Why is it Western? It's not, it, it, it is the people who are there. And those, those are people who by and large went through the European Middle Ages. So they had this confluence of classical antiquity and Christianity that's going to define European history. He calls it Western ideology. 
So that's even bigger than Christianity for him, Western ideology. So if those are the people who dominate, you know, what is now called Australia, then Australia is Western, even though, you know, right above it, Indonesia is definitely not Western. All right. So then, you know, that that phase of Christianizing uh, or or getting the ideology of Christendom, um, put that on his steps or scale of civilizations as they rise and and fall right that's part of why we're looking at this is right. is the understanding there's a there's a life cycle here right exactly and so he's got and I think we talked about this in the first the first episode on on quickly is he's got this in ages of conflict expansion you know apex decline and that applies to anybody whatever their story whether it's already come and gone like you know, Mesopotamian civilization as such in the, you know, distant ancient past, or today, he, you know, he believes that the 20th century is an age of conflict, very obviously for Western civilization. Hmm. So those ages of birth, you know, apex decline, go for everybody in the West, for him is foundationally, this what he calls Western ideology, this, this combination of classical antiquity and its civilization, which is now gone, right? So he doesn't think we are the Romans per se, or the Greeks per se, with Christianity. After that are going to come other steps. The capacity, for instance, to produce mass produce firearms, that's big. The capacity to have functioning sanitation for cities. For him, that's absolutely huge, because it means that the West, therefore, has a demographic revolution because its population can explode since they can produce enough food for a population that's expanding because mortality falls drastically when and where you begin to have, you know, decent plumbing. So there are all these material steps in what he talks about as the history of Western civilization, beginning with the capacity to sustainably feed you know, a population of several tens of millions, right? But before all that is this basic ideological orientation governed by, you know, norms that include Christianity, but also include, you know, our legal tradition, whether that's common law in Anglophone countries or civil law on the continent. All of those things go into it the really interesting thing is that once that gets exported, Western ideology is one of the hardest things to export. (laughs) People understand right away in Japan or Indonesia, like, okay, if this water goes here, like more of us are going to live every year. It's much harder to explain, Hey, you need to believe all this other stuff and, you know, maybe have some sort of, you know, concept of rights or something, all of that is much harder to export. And so the stages will eventually that, that the West has gone through will eventually affect everybody, but not in the same way and not at all in the same order. So, yeah. So conflict expansion, apex decline is not necessarily a prescription of order. That is, that is a prescription of order for civilizations. It's not a prescription of order for, you know, when, because for instance, that, you know, that happened 
for Mesopotamian civilization. But, you know, the Akkadians never came up with a way to handle plumbing on the same level right, as right. the British in the 19th century. Yes. Yeah. So, but so he sees the 20th century as the beginning of a civilization? The 20th century is, is depending on <laughs> which page you're on, is either the beginnings of decline or potentially an apex. It may be that all of this could still fall apart. And the story that we're going to be telling next month, especially about the growth of finance, is part of that uncertainty about where we go from here, which for Quigley, remember, is the middle of the 1960s. And I, I mean, that, that stopping point, I mean, that's when the book was published, is fascinating because at the time, relative to today, our economy in America, for example, is not that financialized. It is controlled by banks. I mean, Quigley's right about all that, and we'll go into it. But it's not that financialized. So, for example, you know, raising interest rates to you know twenty percent or something, as the Fed did to reverse inflation at the end of the seventies, beginning of the eighties. The reason they have to do that is because the economy is not as heavily financialized. So you need to make the interplay between the Fed and other banks more painful. And then that cost will be passed on to actual businesses that make actual things in 1980 later on. Today, the Fed, in order to get reactions from lenders and markets and market makers, really just needs to signal things in the media. And that has a much more outsized effect because at the time that Quigley is writing, you know, the economy of the United States is not, you know, mostly seemingly composed of bets <laughs> uh, on various things, uh, various financial products. Today it is. So when when he's writing, he's, you know, he's saying, okay, finance, finance capitalism, and that's his own stage. And we'll go through those more, particularly another time. But that's that's where we are, and that, that's where that's where he is. Finance capitalism has gotten us here. Can it sustain what it has built? Can it keep that going? And that is sort of up in the air. I mean, that's why that's part of why students found him inspiring was because for these ambitious people that are going to Georgetown, they want to be in government, they want to be in the State Department. You know, yes, I will be the person that will make sure that we keep you know the post-war American financial order together, right? I will be that person. I mean, Bill Clinton found this very inspiring. So that's what's- It's, it's the economy, that, stupid, right? I mean- that, Yeah, it, that, is the, <laughs> it is the economy. It is the economy. And notice too, how, how quickly he's going to end up saying that you know underpinning all of this are certain economic fi and financial factors. So he's going to claim that he's not materialist in the way that I said that Diamond was, but I think ultimately he's going to be. And that that's also, I mean, our our regime is not trying to maintain something specific about, you know, metaphysically true about honor or something or the church of Christ. They're yeah, trying to maintain evidently. a certain standard of life. Yeah, right, right, yeah. right. So um, Age of Aquarius is the apex of civilization. And, and the question is, did we decline from there or not? I mean, for the sake of our, our story that we're telling... Yeah, uh, are we're pretty clear that we moved into decline, right? Or is is, is the yeah. Um, yeah yeah? I I I think 
that is pretty indubitable. And if you want one piece of evidence, it would be the overwhelming nostalgia, often Hmm. without an awareness of why they are so nostalgic, that boomers who were the generation who grew up during this material apex have for that world, right? Lower crime, better standards of living, more personal freedom. You can actually probably get ahead in life. They they generally did well for themselves economically in their generation, and they are now enjoying their retirement in, in most cases oh. because of it. What's wrong with all so, you kids? You get out of college, you just don't want to do anything. It's all lazy. <laughs> well, yeah. And, and some I, of them I are, think, to be fair. I think part of that misunderstanding is, is because unless you do zoom out far enough, the things that you have experienced appear to be normal, indubitable, and obvious to you. Mm -hmm. And like media consumption, as we've talked about, I think this also goes for economic conditions. So, oh, people are just too lazy or millennials conversely, you know, all of them drifting into socialism, sometimes national, sometimes international socialism, simply because the idea that you, you know, pull yourself up by your bootstraps is some stupid boomer idea. All of that comes about, I think, because people are too lazy to zoom out and most can't, and that's fine. But people who could do better intellectually are too lazy to zoom out and see that, you know, a vast amount of life changes and the necessity of taking on debt, for example, and the real cost of things changes vastly in the past 50 years. Yeah, no question. Uh, so as interesting as the last 50 years is, before we get there, we need to go back and look at industrialization. Yeah, because this is one of the stages that quickly outlines industrialization that is going to be latched onto as fast as possible by non-Western countries, either coming into contact with the West for the first time in the case of those that will be you know, largely self-governing, if not entirely, such as Japan, the um, most of the Arab countries, Indonesia is going to you know, be fairly self-governing for a colony that's a Dutch colony, or for the ones uh, which, by and large, between the 50s and the 70s sometime, have become independent of the West you know, legally, right? So uh, most of Africa, large parts of Asia, and then also South America, however you want to think about that, because South America is a really interesting example of colonialism creating completely new and predominant people groups that are not settlers, right? So people that are going to call themselves mestizo all over Latin America did not exist and, 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 and are part before colonialism, but they're not exactly European either. They're something totally new. So all of those different countries are going to be adopting Western things because as of, you know, circumnavigation uh, and trade and colonial expansion, the West is suddenly, certainly by the 19th century, basically everywhere to one degree or another. So when you think about industrialization, which seems like a good way to adopt a much higher standard of life to do better for yourself in your lifetime. You can see kind of a reverse version of this in a lot of people's lives where they went to college and they don't want their kids to go to college. They want their kids to have this kind of hard skill 
obvious skill that will, for which they will be paid, right? That that's sort of a that is sort of its own kind of industrialization where you go from something nebulous and uncertain, can I sell my skills as an English major or you know, honestly, can I sell the crops that I raise in this country to people in another country and thereby become wealthier rather than be a subsistence farmer? It's kind of the same problem, right? Or do I want to make something or produce something, a functioning plumbing system, cars, tanks, whatever, that other people want to buy, right? When you go through that, like the, the benefit is obvious right away. You will materially be better off. You'll have more stuff that you want. And that, that appears to be a universal human you know, desire is to have more stuff, not in the same proportions, but yeah, just more stuff. Okay. Well, all of the, the first countries to industrialize existed as self-conscious entities for centuries and maybe millennia before they industrialized. So England industrializes in a way that they find frighteningly quick, but in the whole scheme of things, you know, they, they have about a hundred, a hundred and, you know, 30 years to go from, okay. Uh, industrial processes have begun to be implemented in earnest in parts of our country, you know, 1730s, 1740s to the point where eventually England becomes a majority urban country, right? Which you know, cities have always existed, but one of the things really to think about with this, with thinking macro historically is how normal or obvious, just set aside boomers or millennials and their economic preferences, how normal and obvious are massive urban areas? Historically, <laughs> they're not normal. And so they don't have to be obvious. It's not like you have to have a world in which or a, certainly a nation, a political entity in which you have large numbers of what like our census calls metropolitan statistical areas. So let's say somebody says, I'm from Phoenix. Well, what do they mean? <laughs> Are they from like the big buildings you can see if you fly into Phoenix? Well, probably not. They might be from a suburb or they might be from you know, this part of the city that is totally different from this other part of the city. And it takes 45 minutes to get from one neighborhood to another neighborhood. The From a place where the of, weather is the same. That's mostly yeah. what <laughs> That's right. That's right. But the existence of things like that, right? If you think about humans somewhat the same way, like if you're a gardener, right? You think about different kinds of plants in your garden. Is it actually normal to have that many of that kind of thing in a place like that? I, I chose Phoenix, for example, because it's like, you have a major problem yeah. of how you got water there yeah. <laughs> that you have something that big. So, okay, you're going to industrialize. Well, you have 150 years to get used to the fact that that's happening. It's still at the time, if you, you know, read, there's a really wonderful book by a guy named Asa Briggs called Victorian Cities. You read Victorian Cities, everyone is shocked by what city life is like or what it's like to have most people in cities. It just seems horrible and crazy to people, especially their first generation moving into that. And so even people that grow up in London, let's say in 1780, don't recognize the city by 1840. Hmm. So you have enormous change. And that change of people moving into cities is going to cause all kinds of other changes. It's not just like 
oh, well, that's okay. I don't want to change my own oil. So I'm fine with living in a city or I don't mind living right next door to people. So I don't, that's not, we're not talking about like sort of like personal aesthetic preferences or skills you have or don't have. We're saying like when, you know, this X number of people move out of living in a rural area where they have time out of mind lived and they all move into a city, even if they move into that city at the same time, that causes religious displacement, for example. So the Church of England's, you know, numbers of people actively going to church in a Church of England parish plummet as a percentage of British churchgoers hmm. as a result of, so they had this really interesting survey in 1850 of on a single Sunday, I think it was like late March in 1850, who was in church. So obviously in England, still today, the majority of people are supposed to be in a Church of England parish. And in 1850, it was the vast majority. Nonetheless, on that Sunday in 1850, a majority, but not a very large majority of Englishmen that were in church, you know, 50 some percent were in a Church of England parish. That should have been somewhere upwards of 80, 90 percent based on membership. So that's partly because the Church of England was slow to respond to and didn't know what to do about these people who are basically sort of uprooted from life and now live in cities and things that were much more adaptable and sort of local and entrepreneurial in their form, such as Congregationalists, Presbyterians, even Unitarians at the time, if you can believe it, were much better at recruiting urban people who should have been by rights, probably by baptism, Anglicans. What are some other changes that took place in the cities or in English life because of that? So, I mean, <clears throat> excuse me, it's a hundred years, enormous change, industrialization. Yeah. I'm, and, I mean, you kind of put off, you know, there's people closer. I would think that'd be a huge one. The number of people that end up living not in, in homes on land, but are in some sort of shantyville um, yeah. uh, kind of thing. Yeah. And for some people that, that was a change, not so much of, you know, maybe the miseries of life as, as a density of miseries. So there's a word that you'll find if you read like a Dickens novel, especially any of them that talk about poverty extensively. Um, Oliver Twist is a good example here. It's called a rookery. That's, that's a word that the Victorians generally used for the poorest parts of a city, right? So these are, these are cities where it is so dirty that Obviously, these are, you know, white people, European people, they all look dark, black, sooty all of the time because of the filth around them. So that doesn't mean that everyone out in the country was like clean and happy. The, the country had kind of its, its own problems, but you get a concentration in cities of problems for which you're going to get not only new problems such as how can we have this many people that have no connection to a church? Because that's also something that's going to grow in England with industrialization is what we would call, but they didn't really have a word for this, secular people, right? People that just have no religious connections whatsoever. That's going to grow. But you're also going to get new solutions. So London is also one of the first places in the world to have an organized police force, right? Because historically, 
whether it's called a sheriff in an English-speaking country or something else in, a, in you know, another legal tradition, the people that the, the, there are no full-time police, <laughs> strictly speaking, because under a certain population density, you just can't get nearly as much happening, good or ill, right? So you don't have enormous opera performances uh, and all the amazing cities that you can, or all the amazing things you can do in cities, but you also just... <laughs> don't have a lot of the vice as well because of a lack of concentration. Once that's concentrated, so you have exploding populations because of agricultural capacities that have been revolutionized before the industrial revolution, along with concentrations of people, you're going to get concentrations of crime. So it's the birth of police forces. It's also the birth of between London and Paris, largely, along with our own Edgar Allan Poe, it's the birth of detective novels, because now there are detectives, <laughs> because now there is <laughs> enough concentrated crime to pay people full time for the city, you know, except for Sherlock Holmes case, for the city to pay them full time to find out what has happened, because people don't know. It doesn't mean that there was no horrible crime in rural England two centuries earlier. It means that there was just proportionately so much less because the concentration of people is so much less. So you have new political and social problems and solutions in the case of an, you know, a permanent police force that never exist before that time. So like anonymity and the ability to hide things is a, that's is a also change, true. Yeah. yeah. And I, I mean, you know, I mean, there's a whole, you know, sub genre of country music about being from a small town. Some of it's you know, sort of sweet. Some of it is, I grew up in a small town and this is why it was bad. That's not that common, but Casey Musgrave is your girl. If that, if you kind of hate the fact that you grew up in a rural area, but most of it is sort of proud. And part of the reason that it's, that it's proud is that when you're, you know, 15, it is extremely painful that everyone knows everything you're doing. But by the time you're 45, it's kind of like comforting and nice. And it's like, oh, I want to raise my kids somewhere like that. You know, that, that kind of trajectory that a lot of people take. Well, because anonymity is impossible at a, at a small scale. At a large scale, it's completely possible. I mean, so the idea of a, a detective novel, for example, certainly at a novel length, maybe you could do a short story about a small town but at a novel length is, is going to be possible largely because identity becomes something that different kinds of agencies are going to define in the modern world. The state, the police force, also you and how you present yourself to other people because that becomes something you choose when there are that many people. It's not like, oh, this is Ben and this is his dad and this is his grandpa and this is the land that they live on or they live on somebody else's land because they're always moving around because they're tenant farmers, whatever the case might be. When you have that many people, you get to begin to choose your identity, but then also to have your identity defined by these sort of, to you, pretty anonymous forces like the state, the police, and so forth. So cities are not a result of industrialization, but cities as normative is a result of industrialization. Yeah, yeah. The idea that like cities are inevitable or you inevitably need to move to a city or that's where everything is going on, that is a result of industrialization. On a, you know, a much smaller scale, this did occur in ways that we wouldn't recognize as, quote, industrial 
uh, there, they'd probably be more called like craft industries or craft work. But this did happen in very limited instances before, let's say, the 17th or 18th century. Ancient Rome is has millions of people. Ancient Edo, now Tokyo, millions of people. So there are very select examples, but they're you know fingers of one hand or maybe two hands in human history prior to the 18th century. Right. As opposed to just yeah. it being everywhere all the time and right. growing endlessly, which right. is, I, I wouldn't have ever thought of this, but it is, I mean, if you're going to industrialize, you're going to have a factory. Factories are going to need a lot, of, a lot of people to work at it. And just like that, you can put a couple of those in one place and you have a, a city that has to be. And it, there's no really, um, until we have pure robot slave races for us, there's no way around that, <laughs> it looks like. That's right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, because it's a it's a large scale it's a large scale enterprise to you know take in the example of Britain to take cotton from the American South and then to produce it in such numbers that it can be exported all over Britain and anywhere else that they'll take any of the shirts that you're making for example you know early on so that requires concentration of people concentration of effort it also requires the people to be available in sufficient numbers. And until you can figure out how to feed people who aren't really raising their own food, certainly not enough to keep themselves alive. And until you can keep those people alive by not, you know, poisoning them with bad water, you don't really have this question of constant population concentration is not a serious one. It's going to become serious first in Europe then in other parts of what we can think of as the West, you know, America, but also Australia, then in, you know, Asia, Africa, South America, because so many more people are staying alive because the water is so much cleaner, certainly in a city, although it's not that clean, depending on where you, which city you're in even today, but the water is clean. People have basic amounts of food to stay alive just metabolically and they have something to do and we can ship what they make, whatever it is whether it's, you know, insurance products in Connecticut or actual stuff, you know, from Mexico or Taiwan, um, we can ship what they're doing somewhere else. All of those connections, but just very basically the capacity to have people and to keep them alive in a concentrated place, that's all necessary in order to make this work and to become, you know, ultimately wealthier. And which is going to lead to an important word, the market right? Like the bazaar, right. the the place where the trade is taking place so that those who don't have can have, and those who have can have more. Um, and uh, whether or not it was always capitalism, uh, I think it's always been about uh, profit. Um, so um, if you want to comment on that, do. Otherwise, let, let's move toward, because no, the, idea here, the yeah. idea here is speed, right? And so yeah. England had all of this happen, but they had it over a pretty distinctly large amount of time, kind of Perspectively, yeah, yeah. Um, and I, I, I mean, I think I just think it's so important that to them it felt rushed and horrible and destructive because every generation was losing its way of life. Yeah, and then you think, okay, well, how fast did industrialization happen? Let's just let's not think on a macro scale. Let's say somebody's ancestors came to Hoboken, New Jersey, directly from rural Slovakia in 1902. So those people move from a place where, uh, you know, you don't have anything resembling an industrial revolution 
Uh, and I picked Slovakia because uh, the Czechs were somewhat industrialized. Slovakia, you are a backwater of a backwater empire in the Austro-Hungarian empire. And you come directly through the Ellis Island and you move to Hoboken, New Jersey, and you're working in a factory and you live right next to people. And there are no horses. There might be gardens in the backyard. You have jumped, <laughs> you personally, in your trip to Hoboken from what in English terms is kind of the early 18th century <laughs> directly into the 20th. Hmm. And it happened because you got passage out of, you know, Hamburg, Germany. So that's on a micro level that can happen on a macro level for a country like, say, Singapore or Japan, which we'll talk about next week in a matter of decades. And the question of speed here, I, I mean in two ways. One is, what does it do to a group of people or even to a single person to change his way of life that quickly? Hmm. Um, what happens? How do people handle that? And I'm not just asking that in terms of like, you know, moving from, okay, I grew up, we were basically doing subsistence farming in rural Slovakia. And now I have all this disposable income and leisure because I work in a factory in Hoboken, New Jersey, but also go in the other direction. Let's say, for instance, that your parents are boomers and they possess more personal disposable income than you will ever have. What are you going to do about that? How will you adjust to that? Because it could be that adjustment is relatively similar, regardless of whether you're moving from more to less or less to more. On a macro level, what does it do to a country? Uh, and we'll definitely explore this more next week with Japan to try to adjust that quickly and to skip certain steps. So for instance, let's say you industrialize, but you don't really figure out how to feed enough of your people. That's going to happen in Soviet Russia. Or let's say that you industrialize and feed your people and do plumbing and have a modern army and navy, but you don't adopt Christianity. That would be Japan, for example. So all of this is kind of fascinating because the same process is happening to almost all of us or at least to all of us at some point or another. Did you want to talk specifically about regions in the U.S.? Yeah, because I think if you are from differing regions of the U.S., you will observe differences that you observe probably have to do with the fact that this, like as in England, you know, North, you know, the highlands of Scotland are, you know, are not the same and never were and still aren't as, you know, the English Midlands, which is their first industrial heartland. You know, the American South is partly as distinctive as it is because uh, not only was it pursuing a completely different economic basis prior to the Civil War, but after the Civil War, it was so economically devastated that it really did not develop any of the you know, phenomena of let's have a giant immigrant population in the city in order to make this industrial product hardly anywhere. You know, the exceptions to that, you know, southern cities with large immigrant populations, relatively speaking, New Orleans, Montgomery, Alabama, in case uh, if I remember, or, I'm sorry, it's Birmingham, um, that's going to be a steelmaking town, are few and far between. Most of the South is very poor, certainly until after the Second World War. And that is going to preserve a certain way of life and an identity regionally. People still have Southern accents, despite 
<laughs> 70 years of TV, uh, that preserves a certain identity that, for instance, you know, Ohio didn't. So there are a set of kids books I didn't talk about, about this kid named Homer Price set in rural Ohio in probably the early 20th century. And uh, I think the guy's name is Robert McCloskey. And those books are largely gone by the wayside because the Midwest, let's say, industrialized its agriculture much more quickly and effectively than did, say, the American South, which was still making and, and still does to some extent, but was still doing, you know, heavily invested in certain parts and say tobacco, which, you know, fell afoul of the regime at a certain point and is now, you know, not nearly what it was. But Homer Price takes place in a small town surrounded by farms that have chickens and cows and ducks and a little bit of this and a little bit of that. And the countryside is never pictured as, you know, one cornfield followed by a bean field, followed by a cornfield after another. And so there's a, there's a number of people that you need to sustain a town, sustain a town like that. There are uh, kinds of people. There is a settled identity. People don't have to move away in Homer Price. They live there their whole lives. And that is not gone everywhere, but it is gone in a lot of places, totally gone, changing the Midwest forever, partly because the Midwest was open to change because it wasn't the economic backwater that the South was. So even within a single country, you can have differing speeds of change, vastly differing speeds which appear to be these immutable characteristics. You know, the, the Midwest is just full of corn. <laughs> that wasn't always true. And if you talk to people old enough, they can remember when it wasn't true. You know, I've, I've talked to old men who grew up farming with horses in the Midwest. And I, uh, one of the questions that I will ask them is, what did the country look like? And they'll tell you how different it looked because the, the nature of the agriculture was vastly different. So Places, places don't just change randomly, you know, <laughs> they change for definite reasons and definite motives. And this is why I think individual people and also people groups, companies, nations are so important. This is not just material stuff. It didn't, there wasn't like a wind that blew through and changed the Midwest into like a, a monoculture. Decisions were made. People decided to, you know, move to farming in this way or taking on this kind of debt or whatever um, in order to make this kind of money. People make decisions and that changes everything. To bring this back to our framework, it was also a time of expansion, correct? Definitely economically. This is an interesting thing about Quigley is that he isn't making all these points. And, and I, I really disagree with him on certain things about Japan, which I'll make clear next week. But Domo. Yeah, but but I think it's a time of expansion for Americans, certainly in the past hundred years. We are we're 102 years away from the census where we became a majority urban nation. And we're we're barely a majority urban nation in 1920. You know, in 1930, they're still asking the question on the census, do you own a radio set? <laughs> so we're not, do you own an automobile? You know, they're still asking these questions on the census. They don't do that anymore. So we ha we're not honestly in the whole scheme of things that far away 
from this. And the listeners, depending on you know their family heritage, may not be removed at all from a rural area, although they will know as well as I do that what I just said about you know the Midwest is true for every rural area. It's not a bunch of people you know raising all their own food or something or even capable of doing so. It's not even necessarily a place where the water's all that clean, partly because of agricultural industrialization. So that has changed drastically. They may be somewhat removed from that. They may be a couple generations removed from that. But those different kinds of change, I am interested in. This is something that I think Quigley underestimates is that material changes in the fortunes of nations, peoples, individuals is not always a benefit or at, to the spirit or, or an evidence of expansion or flourishing. Things could be what an economist would describe as a bubble, not just that you know this or that kind of speculative venture proves to be a bubble phenomenon, but that expansion, such as, for instance, the, the economic expansion that you know three generations ago, both sides of my family had less stuff than I do, you know, and now I have all this other stuff that they never had or, or dealt with in their, in their daily lives. You know, we have two cars, right? For example, two cars, huge change. Those kinds of things may not actually be in any sense that we would want to talk about for human lives good. They might not be bad, but I'm not sure that they're all good exactly. And I think Quigley is somewhat unable to, to see that. He's definitely more unable to see that in the case of the West, his own you know, group, his own civilization, if you will, than in the case of Japan, for example, where he's going to recognize how materially people's lives change, but then how and why the Japanese are going to hold on to other ideals or values or life structures even with massive material change. I think he's a little better able to see that when he's looking at somebody that is not like him than when he's looking at his own civilization and, and saying, hey, look how wealthy we've gotten. Look how you know pleasant or comfortable people's daily lives have become. And remember, he's saying this at what is for almost every Western country, the apex of the average person's economic well-being. Yeah. In the mid 1960s. Yeah. I mean, he's they're not yet at the point where real wages are are, you know, flatlining even as the, you know, real cost of living continually increases in the United States so, as it has since the 70s. So he's seen Apex as an economic phenomenon in his assessment of, of I don't times. think he means to. I think he often is, however, yeah. I mean, how could you not? It, in the, the era of post-enlightenment progressive hope, uh, I, I don't know how you could not. It, it was in the water. Um, yeah. Yeah. Right. Because I think also there, there's this kind of internal conflation, not always stated. And this is not just quickly. I mean, I think this is kind of your average person that, I mean, Luther talks about this, this way about the seventh commandment, in large catechism, when you are doing well, Luther describes them as the rich in the large catechism, yeah. but you know, you have enough to eat, you haven't, you know, like if you just sat down and just, you know, gave thanks for a little bit, you'd actually realize you have everything you basically need. And the rest of it is just stuff that you want, which you could cut back on if you needed to, I suppose, right? That is a danger to the human spirit that the human spirit is very reluctant to recognize. Yeah, that's good. 
So I think that that is something that Quigley is also reluctant or, or maybe at times it's an enormous book. He, he's not always it, it extensively consistent with himself. Nobody would be over that many pages. And if you knew that much about, you know, Japanese cabinet politics in the 1890s, I wouldn't expect you to always get everything right, uh, you know, 500 pages later. But he is often unable to tell the difference between material flourishing and the flourishing of the human spirit or the things that, for example, in his account of Western civilization, the things that precede all of this material success, we can make guns, we can feed ourselves, we can clean up after ourselves, we can make stuff other people want and that's useful to us and other people. Before all of that came basic orientations towards questions like, what is worth saying? What is true? What is honorable? Um, what is right? Without those, the West is not what it becomes. And he would say that. But it is very easy to live without those things and not even to know those answers. I mean, just to go back to our education series, we, at the same time that we become so wealthy, so successful, so clean, so long lived we have also changed our education system in a way drastically different from 500 to 1,000 years that preceded the 19th and 20th centuries, where everyone who was, quote, educated was taught basically all the same stuff, Greek, Latin, theology, math. And we changed that really drastically. So at the very time when we were becoming much more materially successful as nations and even as a civilization, if you will, we changed ideologically to a degree that, I mean, people, your average person doesn't really know anything about George Washington, let alone Caesar or Jesus Christ. So the knowledge of what, by Quigley's account, and I, and I think he's right, undergirds all of this, motivated all of this, tempered all of this, gave us a perspective about material success. All of that's gone because we don't even know it anymore. Having everything you want all the time, winning whenever you try, not going to make you wise, not going to make you wise. You don't have opportunity for the wisdom to grow. Uh, instead, it, it will be um, kind of foolishness incarnate. And, and we're watching that again on a macro here. Um, so, so well, let's try this for a segue. Speaking of knowledge they used to teach, um, the hierarchies of historical knowledge, biology and geography. I think they still teach geography, but they call it social studies. And it's mainly about yeah, how do. men are women. So, yeah. Men are women. <laughs> yeah, right. That's right. And I mean, we can we can pick up with with some of this next week because it'll be it'll be helpful, and we can just use Japan as a specific example when we're talking about it. But just really briefly, the idea here is that certain things need to be learned before other things, it, because they not because they are basic in the sense of being easy, but they're basic in the sense of being foundational. And foundational would be the knowledge of what would broadly be called geography, but specific to the natural sciences might be called biology. So for example, I want to have a city of 1 million people in Arizona. Okay. So you have a basic problem of provision of water, or you have a basic problem of how are you going to get there? Uh, which is answered differently by a pre-industrial civilization, such as at least by their own mythological account, the Aztecs, who say that they came from what is now Utah, Colorado, down by stages into the Valley of Mexico. 
they're going to come by a different way and move in different ways than 19th century America that's going to say, well, we'll just put these, you know, we'll just make roads called railroads and we will just ship stuff there <laughs> until we have enough people and enough stuff that we can make dams and, you know, change water flows. And that will enable us to have all of these people here if they want to come here with the benefit of air conditioning after the Second World War when the Sun Belt explodes. So all of that requires, let's say, layers of knowledge of different things, the politics of Arizona, the politics of railroads in America. But underneath that are just hard, generally geographic or even biological factors. How fast will this you know, body of water evaporate that we're trying to artificially construct in Arizona that needs to be learned. And when we talk about education, whether today or in the past, what people were learning when they were learning, quote, Greek and Latin, were not just languages, but histories of entire civilizations. So, you know, Roman engineering, Greek inventions, in addition to geometry of Euclid or whatever else. So you're learning about how people deal with, you know, Greece is mountainous or Rome is a peninsula or the Romans don't know how to have a Navy until they have to fight the Carthaginians. So when you're learning, whatever you're learning, you need to start with what feel like obvious facts. Japan is an Island or a set of islands, but those are going to affect life much more than I think modern people, especially people from cities or raised in cities or living in cities understand because cities, I think, give you the illusion of having overcome biology, overcome geography, which you don't have if you have to work with the land rather than despite it or without even seeing you know, land that is not affected by human beings. Yeah, the moment you if can't you afford have to a work, car, you, you're gonna, the moment you can't afford a car, you're going to learn geography real quick. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, I mean, just an, an example to finish up here is, you know, you have these differences in the civil war between what the different sides call certain battles. Con the Confederates will generally call battles according to the town near which they occurred. The the Federals or the, the Union soldiers will generally call them according to, uh, you know, natural features. That is because towns are not as notable for relatively more urban, you know, northern troops as they are for southern troops, uh, which is really very sparsely populated relative to the north at the time of the Civil War. So the southerners are going to say, you know, Sharpsburg for the closest town in Maryland, the Federals are going to call the same battle Antietam for the creek near and on the battlefield. So you just have a, you, your, your, your perspective on life is going to be governed by your knowledge of the natural world, which is always there, even if you're in the middle of Manhattan. It's just that parts of it have been obliterated or the reality of, you know, the, the Hudson River or the, you know, the East River just doesn't matter uh, practically hardly at all ever. So you think, you know, the weather channel is the extent of your knowledge of the natural world. Those kinds of things are basic, both for civilizations that need to feed themselves, 
but then also for the average person that needs to understand what are the circumstances of life where I live? Like, how does any of this happen? And could any of it change? And I think if you zoom out enough on anybody's history, you can find that really any of it could change. I think uh, my, my comment about the car, uh, jovial as it was, it, it, I think it really is a big part of this, that the the distance from nature that the automobile puts you into uh, yeah. creates a, a shield, literally, um, that eventually you become accustomed to. It's normalized for you. And as a result, you know, yeah, I got to drive up this hill. I got to make a left turn there. But you don't even think about it. Your comment way earlier about Phoenix, like oh, I'm from Phoenix, where? You know, 45 minutes away from the other guy. Yeah, <laughs> that's forty five minutes in a car, man. That's yeah, right. It's like a different country, right? Like it is, <laughs> it is right. so far, and and we are we're so far removed from this. I think what, for my own part, this last year, and I think maybe what a lot of our listeners also find um, valuable about the show, and what we're, what we're then therefore what we're building here as a, as a framework. Um, yeah. is the recognition that this could change very quickly again, right? And we are unprepared. <laughs> yeah. And oh man, I mean, people, uh, this is shocking to me because I, uh, you know, I have whatever psychological settings that cause me generally to be happy, but people are like, yeah, you know, you're talking about some dark things <laughs> and I don't honestly find it to be dark. Just the idea that, because again, like, please study classical civilizations because there are entire people's nations, cities that everyone thought were impressive. And now they're all gone. And it says this in the Bible too. Nineveh. Yeah, yeah. it's mm-hmm. gone. It's just gone. So you you just, this is basically just, you know, if nothing else changes after the end of this episode, just your imagination for what is possible should change because things that look obvious, natural, normal, clear, simple, of course, there's Phoenix, of course, there's Seattle, of course, there's Cleveland. None of it had to be there and all of it could not be there in your lifetime. Who knows? Take a long walk and enjoy the geography today, right? Like, like it, it's here, <laughs> you know, this is, this doesn't have to be, as you're saying, it doesn't have to be all um, uh, depressing. Uh, it yeah. is something to be aware of though, right? Uh, that we have, we've become so detached from nature that we really can't see anymore. And those who can't see are tearing things down. The answer is not go be Superman. The answer is learn to see. Right. Learn to steep. Right. Start start looking yeah. around at what's there. Um, in that, you said something on not this podcast. Uh, you were you were a guest at the Goddess Needs podcast, uh, and I gave it a listen to. I did notice that this podcast was not promoted on that podcast. I gotta say, Doctor Coons, you gotta help us out here. You speak up for ourselves. But it was a fantastic listen. I highly recommend it to those of our listeners who have not found it yet. Um, do you remember the title of it by any chance? As I say that. Shoot. No, yeah. Um, the Goddesstein's crowd is the podcast. It's the podcast, yeah. And you're the only. Yeah. It's when you're you're listed as the guest. But you talked near the end about that uh, of that one about um, the joy of understanding that no matter how dark the valley might look, you got put here by your God right now, and He's in charge of all of it, and He's promised it works out. So here's kind of what you don't do, and, and here's kind of what you do and it it should be fairly peaceful in your soul 
when you see that, again, he's got it all working out. It may not work out like with all the money and all the cars and all the toys, which is, again, why seeing what's in front of you today is so imperative to dreaming about tomorrow, whether it's collapse or growth, right, apex or otherwise, Um, to to be the warrior in the moment uh, is to say, you know, I live I will always live. And, and this is what I've been given by the God who reigns. Um, now, you said it better than that, I think. Uh, but it was it was very helpful to me in listening to that. Very inspiring. So if you don't mind, try try to sum that up again, the closer day. Well, yeah, <laughs> we'll see. I, I, I mean, I, I think that it is just the basic assertion that you have to begin to believe if you haven't before that providence is real, that God actually loves his children and cares for them. And that therefore worry and anxiety are for that very reason, the thing against which Jesus speaks most often in his most extensive preaching in the Sermon on the Mount, that it's the, it's the better part of wisdom to understand that God is a kind and open-handed and generous father. And that therefore you have only to go to him for what you need rather than worrying about any potentially enormous number of things that could happen. The more history you learn, the more you understand what could be possible. Therefore, you know, that can be extremely useful for any number of vocations, but whatever your vocation, you need to understand that you have a father, whether you are a father or a mother or an engineer or a pastor or whatever you are, you have a father and he's watching over you. And uh, he knows where you are and that you're supposed to be there. And that when you're there, you will glorify his name, most of all in trusting him, uh, that he's good and will do good to you. You're listening to A Brief History of Power. You know where to find us or you would not be here. <laughs> 